Mr. Chairman, uh, I continue to believe that transparency and disclosure to shareholders is of the utmost importance, both as a matter of corporate governance and investor protection. Corporate political spending is material to how shareholders decide where to invest their money and how to vote in corporate elections. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Within the past month, both during and after the committee's nomination hearing, I asked both SEC nominees for assurances that they understand the value of this important disclosure to shareholders. After hearing and reading their responses, I remain concerned that if these two nominees are confirmed, the SEC will continue to obfuscate on this critical policy matter for investors. More and more U.S. public companies are voluntarily disclosing their corporate donations to trade associations and other nonprofits. But many still remain in the shadows. U.S. Senator Robert Menendez wants to require all of them to reveal their political spending. More than 1.2 million Americans have also implored the SEC to act. This issue has received more attention than any rulemaking petition in the SEC's history. As such, I will vote against these nominees. Still, as it turns out, when it comes to shining a light on dark money, it doesn't matter much who runs the SEC or what American investors may want. Every major federal spending bill in the last few years has included language expressly forbidding the regulator from making public companies disclose their political spending to shareholders. So, if government can't solve the problem, what's to be done? On today's program, I'll talk to a man who has spent the last 15 years convincing American companies that it's in everybody's best interest, firms, shareholders, the economy, society in general, to take corporate political spending out of the shadows. We've made political disclosure and accountability the norm for companies. My conversation with Center for Political Accountability President Bruce Freed is coming up later in the program. Plus, we'll hear from MSCI Global Head of Equity Research Demetrius Mellis on stock market volatility, and we'll check in with some of the winners of this year's IR Magazine Awards Canada. But first, this week's ticker update. Large-cap multinational businesses are most likely to have the biggest gaps between CEO and median employee pay, and therefore potential investor relations or PR fallout. New research from Equilar shows that U.S. mega-cap companies have an average CEO pay ratio of 243 to 1. Meanwhile, small-cap companies, defined as between $700 million and $3 billion, have a much lower pay ratio of 72 to 1. Public companies must include the ratio in their proxy statements for the first time this year. SEC Commissioner Kara Stein wants tougher rules governing disclosures about a firm's cybersecurity risks. In a recent speech, Stein noted shareholders are pushing often via governance proposals, for companies to release more information on their cybersecurity practices. But, she says, good information remains scarce. Stein believes the problem is that companies tend to view cyber threats as a technology issue rather than a business risk. 
For the second consecutive year, Diageo and BP lead the pack among UK public companies in the quality and quantity of their use of social media for reporting financial results. According to a new FTI consulting study, the companies that do well on social media do so because they're developing social-specific content, such as short videos, animations, infographics, and fact sheets. Just behind Diageo and BP are BHP Billiton, GlaxoSmithKline, and HSBC. The UK Church Investors Group, whose 61 members manage over $24 billion worth of assets, says it will vote against the chair of the board nomination committee at companies where women account for less than a third of board members. The group will also vote against all directors on the nomination committee if the company has less than 25% female board directors. More than a quarter of FTSE 100 companies fall into that category. Winners of the IR Magazine Awards Canada were announced earlier this month at a gala celebration at Toronto's Royal York Hotel. Oil and gas producer Arc Resources dominated the evening's awards presentations, winning six awards, including Best Overall IR for a Mid-Cap and Best Investor Relations Officer, won by Senior Vice President of Capital Markets and Business Development, Bevan Wurzbach. Agnico Eagle Mines proved another perennial award winner, this time taking home three awards, including Best IR for a Large Cap. IR Magazine digital editor Ben Ashwell asked Vice President of Investor Relations Brian Christie about the secret behind his company's consistent success. I think a lot of it is our C-suite led by our CEO. He really understands the importance of uh, interfacing with uh, the investment community and the analysts. And he puts a lot of time into marketing and seeing our investors. So I think it's a cultural thing that uh, as long as I've been there, I'm into my sixth year now with Agnico, and uh, it goes back for, to the very days of our founder, Paul Penna. Meanwhile, Open Text Corporation's Vice President of Investor Relations, Greg Secord, received the prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Greg with some advice for IROs in the audience. Get involved in the big picture. Get involved in Siri. Give your time, connect the peers globally. Uh, my learnings would, would say get behind policy change when it makes sense for our companies, and most of all, recognize what we do is strategic. Strategic IR. We're in a new place, we're the finest profession, it's a very cool place to be. You can check out irmagazine.com for a list of winners in all 29 award categories. At the end of January and beginning of February, U.S. investors were shocked by something they haven't seen for quite some time, a major market correction. Joining us now is MSCI Global Head of Equity Research, Dimitris Melas. In a blog post earlier this month, he dissected the decline and compared it to previous extreme market conditions. Dimitris Melas, welcome to the ticker. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Demetrius, we've had a bull market that's lasted for almost nine years. 
Why the big sell-off? What uh, actually sparked that initial drop drop was, I believe, some uh, better-than-expected payroll numbers that made uh, investors think that perhaps inflation and interest rates might rise faster than they had previously anticipated. So, you know, this is not unusual and common uh, in the late stages of the business cycle that we're going through right now after a period of strong uh, economic uh, growth and and, uh, very low interest rates and quantitative easing over a number of years. You know, investors may start to worry that things are turning, things are changing. Um, I, I try to understand, I try to go under the hood and understand a little bit if the sell-off uh, had been indiscriminate or if it had affected certain uh, sectors and certain styles and certain factors more severely than others. So, so what we found is that um, the, um, the decline in, uh, in markets, uh, especially in the U.S. market, was not entirely indiscriminate. There was some evidence of uh, flight to safety or flight to quality. So what we observed was that sectors that are considered safer in a bear market, such as utilities and telecom, did decline less than the overall market. And then sectors that are deemed to be more cyclical or have more cyclical, pro-cyclical characteristics suffered more. So we noticed, for example, that uh, energy, industrials, and even information technology companies uh, on average uh, declined by slightly more than the market. You know, having said that, the, the differentiation between different sectors was not huge, right? So, so what dominated uh, the environment was the, the big decline in, in the equity market. A flight to quality is no surprise. It's not surprising. So, so that's, exa- that's exactly right. In, in other words, in this environment, you would expect some differentiation. What's interesting is that in the past, when we had, um, you know, in, in my blog, I also compare what happened on Monday with what happened, for example, on September 15th, uh, Monday, this, September 15th, which was the day that Lehman Brothers, if you remember, of 2008, mm-hmm which was when Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy. That was another shock in the market. It was another extreme event. And back then, qualitatively, the reaction within the equity market was different. Back then, we saw uh, the overall market fell by about the same amount. I think the, the decline that day was about 4.5%. So, so you know, if you look at the headline numbers, the drop was about the same. But then... Back then in September of 2008, on on the 15th, we had a lot more rotation between sectors and factors. So so obviously back then, for example, financial services companies uh, had suffered a lot more than the the overall market, clearly. And also we observed that the leverage factor, in other words, uh, companies that have more leverage on the balance sheet uh, fell more than, uh, than other companies. In other words, you know, clearly investors uh, after the, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and, and in terms of rebalancing their portfolios on that day, they differentiated between financial companies and other companies and also between highly leveraged companies in terms of debt on the balance sheet and those that uh, had lower lower debt on the balance sheet. In this dislocation, we see less differentiation across sectors and factors. So given your analysis, what could be the implications going forward? 
you know, as the saying goes, it's uh, <laughs> economists and, and I guess financial analysts are good at explaining the past, but not so good at predicting <laughs> the future. So, but what I think is clear is that certainly this uh, unusual period of uh, very calm, low volatility conditions with a steady increase in prices has, has come to an end or is coming to an end. And we all need to prepare and brace ourselves for increased volatility. So I would personally anticipate and that, uh, you know, these volatile conditions will continue. Now, that doesn't mean that we will go into a, a persistent bear market. I hope we will not. Uh, at the end of the day, the fundamentals in terms of the economy remain quite positive. Uh, you know, corporate earnings are high, margins are high, economic growth uh, is relatively high in, in all of the major economies around the world. So, so if you look at the economic fundamentals, they of course they haven't changed in the last two three days. What has changed is sentiment. What has changed is perhaps uh, worries about uh, interest rates and whether they will rise faster than expected before. And then the realization that markets had gone a long way and valuations had become stretched. So an IRO can say to investors that this is just an overall market correction and a chance to buy their company at a good price? Certainly for some investors, uh, this could very well uh, be viewed as a buying opportunity. Um, you know, certain businesses with uh, high quality characteristics and, and you know, stable earnings uh, may have also suffered during this uh, market sell-off and therefore investors may find them more attractive now to, to buy and to, to invest, right? Because the underlying fundamentals do not change within a few days. We haven't had a big change in, in the economic fundamentals during this, this time. So I think uh, some of the investor relations people may be justified to point out that uh, the price of their company has just become uh, more attractive than, than before. You may recall on our last show about communicating corporate purpose, we touched on how BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is urging companies to, quote, make a positive contribution to society. Yet, Fink's demands for change left out one critical recommendation. The fact is that in America, unlimited, secret corporate contributions flood state and federal elections. My next guest says that's bad for both the economy and for companies. As president of the Center for Political Accountability, Bruce Freed has convinced hundreds of companies to adopt transparency and board oversight for political spending. Among other initiatives, including spearheading a campaign of shareholder resolutions, the CPA has created an influential index, revealing just how well companies disclose their contributions to political candidates. In the most recent report, 50 companies in the S&P 500 received scores of at least 90%. That's up from just 28 companies in 2015. Still, almost 60 firms earned a score of zero. So he's done pretty good, but he's still got a ways to go. Bruce Freed, welcome to the Ticker Podcast. It is a pleasure to be with you. You know, Bruce, the last time we spoke was in 2011, 
And at that time, I figured it would be a slam dunk that by now, either politicians would have enacted laws or your efforts would have basically succeeded in getting companies to adopt what really seems to be clearly best corporate governance practice. But apparently, getting done what you want to get done is a more long-term endeavor. It is long-term, and we have been very successful. There there was an article that came out uh, late last year in the the Iowa Law Review, Campaign Finance Reform Without Law, (laughs) that was very important because it talked about private ordering. And, you know, that that's where, through voluntary action, a practice becomes a norm. And we've done that. We've made political disclosure and accountability the norm for companies. And we've been able to, um, to, to identify that through the, through the findings of the index, just by looking at the number of companies that have adopted some form of disclosure, the increasing number of companies that either fully disclose or place restrictions on various aspects of their spending, the number of companies that have adopted board oversight, uh, you know, the companies that have not adopted political disclosure and accountability are seen as outliers today. And, you know, our whole effort now is to make disclosure and accountability uniform and universal and then to deal with the risks that companies face from their political spending and uh, and the consequences, and especially where consequences conflict with company values and uh, company policies and uh, company business strategies. Right. And you've done all that through the power of argument. Well, it's it's by framing political spending as a risk that need needs to be managed. It's by by using the corporate governance approach we've been able to succeed. Okay. And by not de- and by and yeah. by dealing with companies collaboratively and cooperatively rather than hostily. You do have a bit of a stick to use the shareholder resolution. Oh, the shareholder resolution uh, really was was absolutely critical for getting this going, and uh, and still remains very important. I mean, I think we you know we have the, there there are, are are two prongs for this: the shareholder resolution and the index. I mean, they complement each other. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Why exactly is disclosure of corporate campaign funding so important? It's important for both positive and negative reasons. The positive reasons are that it really gives companies, and this would be senior management directors, an understanding of where their companies are engaging in political spending. Uh, it really promotes transparency for companies, which I think is a is really treated as a premium today by consumers and by others who are following companies. So. Disclosure and accountability are important for those positive reasons. On the negative side, it's a critical part of enterprise risk management. Political spending increasingly poses a risk to company, to companies, whether it's reputational risk, business risk, or legal risk. Those risks have been heightened, I think, over the past year or so by the, uh, the hyperpolarized political atmosphere, uh, that, um, that all of us face. Uh, companies today face serious problems by what they're associated with through their advertising. We've seen that in the case of companies that pulled their advertising from the O'Reilly factor or from Sean Hannity. 
told their ad agencies to keep them off of Breitbart. Mm. You know, this is because of the various controversies uh, surrounding those uh, organizations or, or individuals. I know in speaking with, with corporate folks that there is a concern that the risks of association also apply to political spending. Uh, you know, as consumers, as the media pay much closer attention to the consequences of company political spending and what a company may be, may be associated with through an election outcome, uh, companies have to be much more sensitive uh, to that. Uh, so I think that, you know, today, you know, disclosure is very important. Also, promises of anonymity cannot be guaranteed. And so companies that engage in uh, contributing through anonymous uh, sources, the 501c4 social welfare organization, or through trade associations, cannot be guaranteed that their contribution will be secret and that they will not have to bear the consequences of that. That's no longer the case. It has been the case for quite a while, but it really is no longer the case today. And so that means companies need to be much more careful. Transparency is a critically important way to protect companies from these risks. So risk management is the foundation for your argument. Can you speak to specific areas about specific examples of companies that have got themselves into hot water? Well, you know, there's the class for reputational risk. There was the classic case of Target. This is back in 2010, you know, where Target had very progressive policies toward LGBTs and uh, ended up giving to a, uh, a, a, uh, a political committee that was supporting a candidate who was opposed to gay rights. Uh, that exploded in, in Target's face and really caused real grief for the company. But you have it much more recently, you know, in the case of North Carolina with the, the passage of HB2, the transgender bathroom law, where you had many, uh, you know, blue chip companies that, uh, that had contributed to a political committee that helped elect the legislature that passed HB2. And those companies took a great deal of grief for that. You know, afterward, you know, the, the companies are threatening to boycott the state after the the enactment of that law, but the fact is companies through their political contributions had made that possible. You know, you had that the same type of situation in um, in Indiana with the passage of the religious freedom law. This was after Mike Pence was elected as governor. There are other issues that are involved. You know, you have companies that, that have helped uh, uh, underwrite the change in control of legislatures that then engaged in uh, in racially tinged gerrymandering. Uh, Mother Jones did a piece about that a while ago that was entitled uh, uh, Meet the Fortune 500 Companies, you know, Underwriting the Resegregation of American Politics. And what this article did was looked at the company's political contributions to the political committee and then compared that, uh, the, you know, the consequence of their contributions with the company's diversity policies. So companies are really being held to a much higher standard today. You know, you know, you, you have the media, you have consumers, you have watchdog groups that are, are looking to see, you know, is the company's political spending in alignment with uh, company policies and practices, whether it be diversity, whether it be the support for, uh, support for addressing climate change, uh, whether it be the treatment of women in the workplace. You know, this, this is also a major issue with, with climate change, where last fall there was a, a very significant article about 27 companies 
that had reaffirmed their support for the Paris Climate Accord, yet the companies had contributed to the election of attorney general candidates who filed suit against the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Power Plan, which was a major initiative, uh, you know, to address climate change. So in this area, you know, companies face very serious consequences, legal consequences. You know, if a contribution is made in return for an official act, you know, that's, that's known as bribery. And, uh, you know, with the, with the rise of the 501c4 social welfare organizations and 501c4s that are closely associated with very powerful elected officials, you run the risk or companies run the risk that contributions to those groups, you know, should they be uncovered that are in close proximity to the passage of legislation, or other actions that may benefit a company could be seen as uh, as bribery. Business strategy, you have companies that have supported addressing climate change. Uh, this was the case back in 2010 when you had the passage of the uh, uh, climate change legislation in the House, and you had leading companies that uh, that supported cap-and-trade legislation, they were members of, a, of an association, an organization that was supporting that. They were also members of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which was leading the fight against cap and trade and uh, legislation and addressing climate change. So these companies were basically working, giving money to work against their interests. So those are the three areas where, where political spending uh, can pose a very serious risk to companies. So you need to have both disclosure and board oversight. No, you need you need to have disclosure and accountability. You need to have disclosure. You need to have board oversight. You need to have management paying close attention to its decision making. Uh, you cannot really have one without the other, and that's a point that we we have made over the years, and that companies have come to recognize. What happens to companies that? for one reason or another, perhaps your persuasive arguments, uh, who decide they're going to be good corporate citizens and get their acts together. Does all that good corporate governance translate into a good stock price? You know, there was an article uh, last year in Market Watch, a column by Michael Brush, which looked at company scores on the CPA Zicklin Index. That's our our annual benchmarking of the S&P 500 companies on their political disclosure and accountability policies. It looked at their scores on the index and their market performance. And, uh, and Michael looked at the top 48 companies and the bottom 48 companies, and he found that the top 48 companies had a higher market performance than the bottom 48 companies. He did not make an effort to see what the causes were, but he found there was a correlation between score and uh, and market performance. And that's the first time that somebody has looked at that. Uh, you know, he did that independently. We just gave him the data, and and he ran the uh, you know the numbers and uh, and did and did the comparison. So, you know, I think you know based on that, there are at least indications that there could be a correlation between company, the, the, the level of disclosure and accountability policies, and a company's uh, market performance. I really think we seem to be at a kind of inflection point here in terms of corporate responsibility. Uh, I'm looking at your 2017 proxy season analysis. It shows that mutual fund support for political spending disclosure is generally rising. 
But the biggest fund groups, the Vanguards, the Fidelities, the Blackrocks, they continue to have a nearly unbroken record of voting against or abstaining on corporate election spending disclosure resolutions. What's with that? I think that there has been a uh, there's been increased concern about this. I know this, you know, through through conversations that we've had with uh, with some of the big public pension funds, even with some of the large institutional investors. There's a recognition that political disclosure and accountability is important. In the case of some of the large institutional investors, they need to move from being from an awareness of that to actually supporting that and using the power of their proxy to make it uniform and universal. I think that's that's the next step. You know, we, we have, through our efforts, made it a norm. Now it's a matter of of solidifying that. Uh, since 2011, there's been a rulemaking petition before the Securities and Exchange Commission to require companies to disclose their political, their electoral spending with corporate funds. That's been blocked by Congress and blocked by uh, some of the chairman of the SEC, both Democratic and Republican. Uh, and I think that you see, you're finding from investors a recognition that this type of uh, of disclosure, uh, these policies are needed. But I think you're you're getting the movement toward that on a on a annually, year by year. Uh, at, at some point, it will become. Uh, required, uniform and universal. You know, our our whole goal at this point is to do as much as we can through the voluntary effort that uh, that has been highly successful for the past 15 years. Can you talk a bit about how the current status quo affects not just companies, but the economy in general? Political spending can have a very, very distorting effect on the economy. You know, it, it really can be used for rent-seeking it can be used to give a company an unwarranted competitive advantage. You know, that distorts the market. And, you know, when you have companies, you know, say large institutional investors that are buying on, on an end that have an index, you know, basis for, for their holdings, uh, you know, it, it, it will affect, you know, that overall performance of the economy. Political spending can also be used to, uh, you know, to help promote concentration. Concentration is bad for a smooth functioning economy. So it really should be in the interest of your vanguards and your fidelities and your black rocks to have transparency in political spending because political spending has consequences and it has very serious consequences and very deep seated consequences. You know, one of the arguments that I'll hear from from some folks is that oh, the the amount of money in political spending is de minimis compared to the you know the the, the expenditures of companies or revenues of companies. Uh, and the fact is, uh, you know, the smaller countries, you know, smaller expenditures in some areas can have much you know much greater consequences. And political spending is to me a classic example there. They're, they're kind of killing the golden goose, I guess. I mean, for capitalism to work, we have to actually have capitalism. Capitalism can work if it's regulated and if boundaries are set and if there are standards of behavior that are overseen and enforced. You don't do that and you get serious distortions that create crises. I still don't really get it. Why wouldn't these big investors want to know just how much money they're giving to companies to basically spend on politicians as they wish? 
their increasing attention is being paid to that. But I think the the large, some of the large institutional investors have not recognized the extent to which political money can be distorting, can have an impact on the performance of companies in which they're invested and the performance of the overall economy. And I think uh, that they need to take a much broader outlook. You know, if you go back to the, the late the late 1990s and uh, you had, you know, the Enron scandal, the, the whole issue of the regulation of derivatives and, you know, that was blocked, you know, in the financial uh, deregulation legislation, uh, you know, in the, in the, I think it was 1999 uh, and um, that opened the door for the abuses that you had at Enron that brought the company down. And that had serious consequences for the economy. You know, when you had Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossing collapsing, other companies uh, that that collapsed, uh, and that you know, did create serious problems uh, for the for the performance of the economy. Political spending was part of that. You know, political spending was used to, in the case of Enron to block regulation of derivatives. In the case of some of the other companies, political spending was used to create the impression that the companies were much larger and much more successful than they really were. It's like a blowfish. Hmm. I mean, there's a very strong, you know, just economic argument, market performance argument for disclosure and accountability. You know, you're not even getting into into the, 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 the issue of you know, with consequences of the spending, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the need for companies to take a societal outlook, you know, when they, 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 when they're uh, looking at the impact of their, of their behavior, when they're taking a look at, at their needs, uh, you know, for instance, companies needing a strong infrastructure, a strong education system, strong support for research and development, you know, all of those things uh, are affected by political spending in terms of who's elected, mm. you know, what the policies that elected officials will uh, uh, will be supporting, you know, agendas that are being uh, set. Again, they get to set the agenda, short term at least. But there's no mechanism for them to look at the long term and say, well, we're literally eating the golden goose. Yes, and, you know, that's an argument that, that we make, that, you know, when companies are engaging in political spending, that they need to be looking both short term and long term. They need to take, to take a look at the environment that they need to grow and thrive in narrow terms and in broad terms. And their political spending has a direct impact on that, both short term and long term. Right, right. And, then, and that's and why we—that's why we're calling for disclosure and accountability. I mean, accountability is extremely important in terms of the type of policies that a board sets, the questions that they ask, the decisions that they make. And then, and then, even more broader than that is is sort of the legitimacy angle. Um, getting back again to that inflection point thing, I keep coming back to. I think uh, you have the 2018 elections. I—I I don't know what kind of undercurrents are going on, but there's a lot of distrust. Um, with uh, the system, um, this sort of thing undermines trust in in the system even more. Oh, I, I think I think that uh, that this was an, that political spending and concern about the impact of political spending and political influence 
had an impact on the outcome in 2016 in terms of the of of the the jaundice the jaundiced view that you had of a significant part of the electorate toward the legitimacy of our political system the role of money you know the role of of influence in quotation marks i think is going to be a major issue in in 2018 it's it is corrosive and has been corrupting and distorting and uh and uh, when you when you make spending above board and you you bring in accountability i think that goes a long way toward restoring trust and addressing you know the 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 distrust that i think is is very corrosive and dangerous yeah, well, we'll have an opportunity to get an idea of that mistrust in the midterm elections later this year. Maybe a lot of that distrust can be cut off at the pass during the proxy season. What's your outlook on that? Well, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens in terms of the the res- you know the center has uh, close to forty uh, of its model resolutions that have been filed by our shareholder partners. Uh, uh, but we'll be measuring what what companies are doing when we do the 2018 CPA Zicklin index. Uh, we'll start work on the index uh, in the late spring, and the index will come out in uh, September before the election. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have really been very pleased with is the response of companies to the index. They take it seriously. We receive calls, contacts from many companies about the type of policies that they need to adopt. And uh, you know, over the years, we've refined the index to provide them with guidance on the criteria that are used for scoring each of the indicators. You know, that, that look at disclosure, decision making, oversight, uh, and compliance. And you know, we find that once companies take the step of adopting disclosure and accountability, you know, however weak initially, it opens the door, it leads them to to strengthen those policies. And, and we've seen that in, you know, in company after uh, company. Uh, so, oh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of company, incremental. They'll sort of do one or two things, and then the next year they'll They'll yeah, say this is it's working. Not, it's increment. It's not static. It's dynamic, and that that to me is is extremely important. And they look at the index and they actually measure themselves. They they sort of go, we're doing okay, kind of thing. It's a, they get a oh, scorecard. Without without question, without question. I mean, I've been on many phone calls, and I hear that. I mean, that's that's you know part of the conversations. The companies are measuring themselves through the index. Companies are comparing them with their peers. Companies want to improve. They want to do better. And so they're taking a look. They're asking, well, you know, what, what would be an example of, of, a, of, a, of a company policy that we should aspire to? And, you know, we'll provide it to them. And we find companies, you know, you know moving, in, moving upward. That must be very satisfying for you. To, oh, it's to, very important. It's to, very. That's what. That's that's why I've been here 15 years, because I see this tremendous progress. 15 years ago, there was nothing. Today, you know, through private ordering, it's become it's it's the norm. So the fact is, the political system has failed. It has basically given companies a blank check. The question is, how do you find a workaround to be able to regulate and deal with it? And the workaround, your workaround, has been through corporate governance. If Congress lets the SEC make a rule on this, are you out of a job? 
Oh, absolutely not. No, no. The, the SEC, an SEC political disclosure rule would only deal with disclosure. It would not deal with accountability. So there's still a major role for the center in working with companies on board oversight, on managing the risk. You know, the fact that you disclose uh, might lessen the risk somewhat, but it does not eliminate the risk. Uh, you know, even political spending that's openly engaged in can be very risky. Uh, and so, you know, there is a major role for the center, you know, as we look at at the risks and we look at the consequences and we work with companies on how to uh, on how to to deal with these. So still political spending resolutions will be on the agenda this year. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's on the agenda for proxy season through the resolutions that we have filed. But it's going to be on the agenda of companies when they receive the uh the uh, letter or email from us in late spring that will be uh, starting the data collection for the 2018 index. The index covers the entire S&P 500. Those are the largest U.S. public companies, and those are the companies that tend to be the largest political spenders. Uh, so companies um, companies will have to deal with uh, with their political spending policies and practices, uh, whether it's through resolution or whether it's through our uh, our scoring of them for the index. So they'll look at your index and say, hmm, maybe we should lift our socks a little bit. We don't really want to see anything go to a proxy this year. Well, with the resolution, uh, you know, that's the case. You know, we, we will, through our, with our shareholder partners, be engaging in dialogues. We also receive, you know, calls from companies that, in anticipation of the of the index, uh, uh, you know, wanting to improve their policies before we begin our scoring. So, we're dealing with companies, you know, for a variety. There there are a variety of reasons why companies are getting in touch with us, whether it's a proxy resolution or whether it's the the index uh, scoring that's coming up, or whether a company has decided it's time for us to. Uh, strengthen our adopt or strengthen our uh, policies on political spending and Bruce where is where is this coming from uh, specifically from a company and, and I hope you say the IR person but you, you probably won't but it, it's probably not the CEO is it like the corporate secretaries at the board or, or who's like it's the corporate secretary and folks in the general counsel's office oh, okay huh we don't have that much to do with the investor relations person people I was hoping we you wouldn't did. say that <laughs> You you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> well, what do you think? You know, just what do you think their role would be in this? I mean, they are you know in touch with uh, investor feelings. They they transmit that to investor. The investor relations people should be playing a very significant role in this. You know, this is clearly something of concern to investors. Uh, you know, the, the IR folks should be attuned to this. Uh, you know, they should be getting in touch with us. They should be, you know, one of the point people uh, in a company that uh, that are addressing this issue. I would hope the investor relations would become more active in this area because they do uh, they do interface with investors, and I think you know they can be a very important um, uh, force in a company uh, in bringing this issue. I think you know the IR people I think are, are very important for bringing for spurring top management to deal with this issue for alerting them that it's increasingly important and urgent. It's urgent for the companies to deal with because, you know, with the type of public anger that you have out there, 
And with the attention that's being given to money and politics and the role of corporations, corporations are significant spenders, if not dominant spenders in some areas. That, that really means that they become lightning rods, you know, for, for public ire on this. And, uh, and I think that, you know, it really behooves companies and, uh, to pay much greater attention to this and to adopt policies that put them in the forefront that shows, that shows that they're good, that they're good citizens. There you go, folks. You've got the call. IR has a purpose. And it goes beyond the standard Neary definition. Now get out there and save America. Before we go, let me tell you about a couple of upcoming IR Magazine events. On Thursday, March 22nd, the IR Magazine Awards US 2018 gets underway at Cipriani Wall Street. You can book your seat now at irmagazine.com or call Bridget Toledano at 212 430-6861. She'll treat you like you are the only person in the world. And don't forget the IR Magazine Think Tank West Coast. That's coming up March 28th in Palo Alto. That's all for this week's Ticker Podcast. Do you subscribe to us on iTunes? Please do if you don't. My thanks to MSCI's Demetrius Mellas and Center for Political Accountability's Bruce Freed. And thanks to you for listening. Great to be back with you. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.